Chapter Twenty Three of The Virginian. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister. Chapter Twenty Three. Various Points. Love had been snowbound for many weeks. Before this imprisonment, its course had run neither smooth nor rough, so far as I could see. It had run either not at all, or as an undercurrent, deep out of sight. In their rides, in their talks, love had been dumb, as to spoken words at least, for the Virginian had set himself a heavy task of silence and of patience. Then, where winter barred his visits to Bear Creek, and there was for the while no ranch work or responsibility to fill his thoughts and blood with action, he set himself a task much lighter. Often, instead of Shakespeare and fiction, school-books lay open on his cabin table, and penmanship and spelling helped the hours to pass. Many sheets of paper did he fill with various exercises, and Mrs. Henry gave him her assistance in advice and corrections. "'I shall presently be in love with him myself,' she told the judge, "'and it's time for you to become anxious.' "'I am perfectly safe,' he retorted. "'There's only one woman for him any more.' "'She is not good enough for him,' declared Mrs. Henry. "'But he'll never see that.' So the snow fell, the world froze, and the spelling-books and exercises went on. But this was not the only case of education which was progressing at the Sunk Creek Ranch while love was snowbound. One morning Scipio Lemoyne entered the Virginian's sitting-room, that apartment where Dr. McBride had wrestled with sin so courageously all night. The Virginian sat at his desk. Open books lay around him. A half-finished piece of writing was beneath his fist. His fingers were coated with ink. Education enveloped him, it may be said. But there was none in his eye. That was upon the window, looking far across the cold plain. The foreman did not move when Scipio came in, and this humorous spirit smiled to himself. "'It's Bear Creek he's having a vision of,' he concluded. But he knew instantly that this was not so. The Virginian was looking at something real, and Scipio went to the window to see for himself. "'Well,' he said, having seen, "'when is he going to leave us?' The foreman continued looking at two horsemen riding together. Their shapes, small in the distance, showed black against the universal whiteness. "'When do you figure he'll leave us?' repeated Scipio. "'He,' murmured the Virginian, always watching the distant horsemen, and again, "'He,' Scipio sprawled down, familiarly, across a chair. He and the Virginian had come to know each other very well since that first meeting at Medora. They were birds, many of whose feathers were the same, and the Virginian often talked to Scipio without reserve. Consequently, Scipio now understood those two syllables that the Virginian had pronounced, precisely as though the sentences which lay between them had been fully expressed. Hmm, he remarked. Well, one will be a gain, and the other won't be no loss. Poor Shorty, said the Virginian. Poor fool. Scipio was less compassionate. No, he persisted. I ain't sorry for him. Any man old enough to have hair on his face ought to see through Trampas. The Virginian looked out of the window again, 
and watched Shorty and Trampas as they rode in the distance. "'Shorty is kind to animals,' he said. "'He has gentled that hoss Pedro he bought with his first money. Gentled him wonderful. When a man is kind to dumb animals, I always say he has got some good in him.' "'Yes,' Scipio reluctantly admitted. "'Yes, but I always did hate a fool.' This here is a mighty cruel country, pursued the Virginian. To animals, that is. Think of it. Think what we do to hundreds and thousands of little calves. Throw em down, brand em, cut em, earmark em, turn em loose, and on to the next. It has got to be, of course. But I say this. If a man can go jammin' hot irons on to little calves and slicin' pieces off em with his knife, and live along, keeping a kindness for animals in his heart, he has got some good in him. And that's what Shorty has got. But he is letting Trampas get a hold of him, and both of them will leave us. And the Virginian looked out across the huge winter whiteness again. But the riders had now vanished behind some foothills. Scipio sat silent. He had never put these thoughts about men and animals to himself, and when they were put to him he saw that they were true. "'Queer,' he observed finally. "'What?' "'Everything.' "'Nothing's queer,' stated the Virginian, "'except marriage and lightning. Them two occurrences can still give me a sensation of surprise.' "'All the same, it is queer,' Scipio insisted. "'Well, let her go at me.' "'Why, Trampas, he done you dirt. You passed that over. You could have fired him, but you let him stay and keep his job. That's goodness. And badness is resultin' from it, straight. Badness, right from goodness.' "'You're off the trail a whole lot,' said the Virginian. "'Which side am I off, then?' "'North, south, east, and west. First point, I didn't expect to do Trampas any good by not killing him which I came pretty near doing three times. Nor I didn't expect to do Trampas any good by letting him keep his job. But I am foreman of this ranch, and I can sit and tell all men to their face I was above that meanness. Point two. It ain't any goodness. It is Trampas that badness has resulted from. Put him anywhere and it will be the same. Put him under my eye and I can follow his moves a little anyway. You have noticed, maybe, that since you and I run on to that dead polled Angus cow that was still warm when we got to her, we have found no more cows dead of sudden death. We came mighty close to catching whoever it was that killed that cow and ran her calf off to his own bunch. He wasn't ten minutes ahead of us. We can prove nothing, and he knows that just as well as we do. But our cows have all quit dying of sudden death, and Trampas, he's getting ready for a change of residence. As soon as all the outfits begin hiring new hands in the spring, Trampas will leave us and take a job with some of them. And maybe our cows will commence getting killed again, and we'll have to take steps that will be more emphatic, maybe. Scipio meditated. I wonder what killing a man feels like, he said. Why, nothing to bother you when he'd ought to have been killed. Next point, Trampas, he'll take Shorty with him, which is certainly bad for Shorty. But it's me that has kept Shorty out of harm's way this long. 
If I'd fired Trampas, he'd have worked Shorty into dissatisfaction that much sooner. Scipio meditated again. I knowed Trampas would pull his freight, he said, but I didn't think of Shorty. What makes you think it? He asked me for a raise. He ain't worth the pay he's getting now. Trampas has told him different. When a man ain't got no ideas of his own, said Scipio, he'd ought to be kind of careful who he borrows em from. That's mighty correct, said the Virginian. Poor Shorty, he has told me about his life. It is sorrowful, and he will never get wise. It was too late for him to get wise when he was born. Do you know why he's after higher wages? He sends most all his money east. I don't see what Trampas wants him for, said Scipio. Oh, a handy tool some day. Not very handy, said Scipio. Well, Trampas is aiming to train him. You see, supposing you were figuring to turn professional thief, you'd be looking around for a nice young trustful accomplice to take all the punishment and let you take the rest. No such thing, cried Scipio angrily. I'm no shirker. And then, perceiving the Virginian's expression, he broke out laughing. Well, he exclaimed, you fooled me that time. Looks that way, but I do mean it about Trampas. Presently Scipio rose and noticed the half-finished exercise upon the Virginian's desk. Trampas is a rolling stone, he said. A rolling piece of mud, corrected the Virginian. Mud, that's right, I'm a rolling stone. Sometimes I'd most like to quit being. That's easy done, said the Virginian. No doubt, when you've found the moss you want to gather. As Scipio glanced at the school books again, a sparkle lurked in his bleached blue eye. I can cipher some, he said, but I expect I've got my own notions about spelling. I retain a few private ideas that way myself, remarked the Virginian innocently, and Scipio's sparkle gathered light. As to my geography, he pursued, that's a way out loose in the brush. Is Bennington the capital of Vermont? And how do you spell bridegroom? Last point, shouted the Virginian, letting a book fly after him. Don't let badness and goodness worry you, for you'll never be a judge of them. But Scipio had dodged the book and was gone. As he went his way, he said to himself, all the same, it must pay to fall regular in love. At the bunkhouse that afternoon it was observed that he was unusually silent. His exit from the foreman's cabin had let in a breath of winter so chill that the Virginian went to see his thermometer, a Christmas present from Mrs. Henry. It registered twenty below zero. After reviving the fire to a white blaze, the foreman sat thinking over the story of Shorty what its useless, feeble past had been, what would be its useless, feeble future. He shook his head over the somber question. Was there any way out for Shorty? It may be, he reflected, that them whose pleasure brings you into this world owes you a living, but that don't make the world responsible. The world did not beget you. I reckon man helps them that help themselves. As for the universe, 
It looks like it did too wholesale a business to turn out an article up to standard every clip. Yes, it is sorrowful, for Shorty is kind to his hoss. In the evening the Virginian brought Shorty into his room. He usually knew what he had to say, usually found it easy to arrange his thoughts, and after such arranging the words came of themselves. But as he looked at Shorty this did not happen to him. There was not a line of badness in the face, yet also there was not a line of strength, no promise in eye or nose or chin. The whole thing melted to a stubby, featureless mediocrity. It was a countenance like thousands, and hopelessness filled the Virginian as he looked at this lost dog and his dull, wistful eyes. But some beginning must be made. "'I wonder what the thermometer's got to be,' he said. "'You can see it if you'll hold the lamp to that right side of the window.' Shorty held the lamp. "'I never used any,' he said, looking out at the instrument nevertheless. The Virginian had forgotten that Shorty could not read. So he looked out of the window himself, and found that it was twenty-two below zero. "'This is pretty good tobacco,' he remarked and Shorty helped himself and filled his pipe. "'I had to rub my left ear with snow today,' said he. "'I was just in time.' "'I thought it looked pretty freezy out where you was riding,' said the foreman. The lost dog's eyes showed plain astonishment. "'We didn't see you out there,' said he. "'Well,' said the foreman, "'it'll soon not be freezing any more, and then we'll all be warm enough with work.' Everybody will be working all over the range. And I wish I knew somebody that had a lot of stable work to be attended to. I certainly do, for your sake. Why? said Shorty. Because it's the right kind of a job for you. I can make more, began Shorty, and stopped. There is a time coming, said the Virginian, when I'll want somebody that knows how to get the friendship of hosses. I'll want him to handle some special hosses the judge has plans about. Judge Henry would pay fifty a month for that. I can make more, said Shorty, this time with stubbornness. Well, yes, sometimes a man can, when he's not worth it, I mean, but it don't generally last. Shorty was silent. I used to make more myself, said the Virginian. You're making a lot more now, said Shorty. Oh, yes, but I mean when I was fooling around the earth, jumping from job to job, and hellin' all over town between whiles. I was not worth fifty a month then, nor twenty-five, but there was nights I made a heap more at Kyard's. Shorty's eyes grew large. And then, bang, it was gone with treatin' the men and the girls. I don't always, said Shorty, and stopped again. The Virginian knew that he was thinking about the money he sent east. After a while, he continued, I noticed a right strange fact. The money I made easy that I wasn't worth, it went like it came. I strained myself none getting or spending it. But the money I made hard that I was worth, why, I began to feel right careful about that. And now I have got savings stowed away if once you could know how good that feels. So I would know, said Shorty, with your luck. What's my luck? 
said the Virginian sternly. "'Well, if I had took up land along a creek that never goes dry, and proved upon it like you have, and if I had saw that land raise its value on me, with me lifting no finger—' "'Why did you lift no finger?' cut in the Virginian. "'Who stopped you taking up land? Did it not stretch in front of you, behind you, all around you, the biggest, baldest opportunity in sight? That was the time I lifted my finger, but you didn't.' Shorty stood stubborn. "'But never mind that,' said the Virginian. "'Take my land away to-morrow, and I'd still have my savings in bank. Because, you see, I had to work right hard gathering them in. I found out what I could do, and I settled down and did it. Now you can do that, too. The only tough part is the finding out what you're good for. And for you, that is found.' If you'll just decide to work at this thing you can do, and gentle those hosses for the judge, you'll be having savings in a bank yourself. "'I can make more,' said the lost dog. The Virginian was on the point of saying, "'Then get out!' But instead he spoke kindness to the end. "'The weather is freezing yet,' he said, "'and it will be for a good long while. Take your time, and tell me if you change your mind.' After that Shorty returned to the bunkhouse, and the Virginian knew that the boy had learned his lesson of discontent from Trampas with a thoroughness past all unteaching. This petty triumph of evil seemed scarce of the size to count as any victory over the Virginian. But all men grasp at straws. Since that first moment, when in the Medicine Bow Saloon the Virginian had shut the mouth of Trampas by a word, the man had been trying to get even without risk, and at each successive clash of his weapon with the Virginians he had merely met another public humiliation. Therefore, now at the Sunk Creek Ranch in these cold white days, a certain lurking insolence in his gait showed plainly his opinion that by disaffecting Shorty he had made some sort of reprisal. Yes, he had poisoned the lost dog. In the springtime, when the neighboring ranches needed additional hands, it happened as the Virginian had foreseen. Trampas departed to a better job, as he took pains to say, and with him the docile shorty rode away upon his horse Pedro. Love now was not any longer snowbound. The mountain trails were open enough for the sure feet of love's steed, that horse called Monty. But duty blocked the path of love. Instead of turning his face to Bear Creek, the foreman had other journeys to make, full of heavy work and watchfulness and counsels with the judge. The cattle thieves were growing bold, and winter had scattered the cattle widely over the range. Therefore the Virginian, instead of going to see her, wrote a letter to his sweetheart. It was his first. End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 A Letter with a Moral The letter which the Virginian wrote to Molly Wood was, as has been stated, the first that he had ever addressed to her. I think perhaps he may have been a little shy as to his skill in the epistolary art, a little anxious lest any sustained production from his pen 
might contain blunders that would too staringly remind her of his scant learning. He could turn off a business communication about steers or stock cars, or any other of the subjects involved in his profession, with a brevity and a clearness that led the judge to confide three-quarters of such correspondence to his foreman. "'Write to the seventy-six outfit,' the judge would say, "'and tell them that my wagon cannot start for the round-up until,' etc., or, "'Write to Cheyenne and say that if they will hold a meeting next Monday week, I will,' etc., and then the Virginian would write such communications with ease. But his first message to his lady was scarcely written with ease. It must be classed, I think, among those productions which are styled literary efforts. It was completed in pencil before it was copied in ink, and that first draft of it in pencil was well-nigh illegible with erasures and amendments. The state of mind of the writer during its composition may be gathered without further description on my part from a slight interruption which occurred in the middle. The door opened and Scipio put his head in. "'You comin' to dinner?' he inquired. "'You go to hell!' replied the Virginian. "'My jinks!' said Scipio quietly, and he shut the door without further observation. To tell the truth, I doubt if this letter would ever have been undertaken, far less completed and dispatched, had not the lover's heart been wrung with disappointment. All winter long he had looked to that day when he should knock at the girl's door, and hear her voice bid him come in. All winter long he had been choosing the ride he would take her. He had imagined a sunny afternoon, a hidden grove, a sheltering cleft of rock, a running spring, and some words of his that should conquer her at last and leave his lips upon hers. And with this controlled fire pent up within him, he had counted the days, scratching them off his calendar with a dig each night that once or twice snapped the pen. Then, when the trail stood open, this meeting was deferred, put off for indefinite days or weeks, he could not tell how long. So, gripping his pencil and tracing heavy words, he gave himself what consolation he could by writing her. The letter, duly stamped and addressed to Bear Creek, set forth upon its travels, and these were devious and long. When it reached its destination it was some twenty days old. It had gone by private hand at the outset, taken the stagecoach at a waypoint, become late in that stagecoach, reached a point of transfer, and waited there for the postmaster to begin, continue, end, and recover from a game of poker mingled with whiskey. Then it once more proceeded, was dropped at the right waypoint, and carried by private hand to Bear Creek. The experience of this letter, however, was not at all a remarkable one at that time in Wyoming. Molly Wood looked at the envelope. She had never before seen the Virginian's handwriting. She knew it instantly. She closed her door and sat down to read it with a beating heart. Sunk Creek Ranch, May 5th, 1880- My dear Miss Wood, I am sorry about this. My plan was different. It was to get over for a ride with you about now or sooner. This year spring is early. 
the snow is off the flats this side the range and where the sun gets a chance to hit the earth strong all day it is green and has flowers too a good many you can see them bob and mix together in the wind the quaking asps down low on the south side are in small leaf and will soon be twinkling like the flowers do now i had planned to take a look at this with you and that was a better plan than what i have got to do the water is high but i could have got over and as for the snow on top of the mountain a man told me nobody could cross it for a week yet because he had just done it himself was not he a funny man you ought to see how the birds have streamed across the sky while spring was coming but you have seen them on your side of the mountain but i can't come now miss wood there is a lot for me to do that has to be done and judge henry needs more than two eyes just now i could not think much of myself if i left him for my own wishes but the days will be warmer when i come we will not have to quit by five and we can get off and sit too we could not sit now unless for a very short while if i know when i can come i will try to let you know but i think it will be this way I think you will just see me coming, for I have things to do of an unsure nature, and a good number of such. Do not believe reports about Indians. They are started by editors to keep the soldiers in the country. The friends of the editors get the hay and beef contracts. Indians do not come to settled parts like Bear Creek is. It is all editors and politicianists. Nothing has happened worth telling you. I have read that play, Othello. No man should write down such a thing. Do you know if it is true? I have seen one worse affair down in Arizona. He killed his little child as well as his wife, but such things should not be put down in fine language for the public. I have read Romeo and Juliet. That is beautiful language, but Romeo is no man. I like his friend Mercutio that gets killed. He is a man. If he had got Juliet, there would have been no foolishness and trouble. Well, Miss Wood, I would like to see you today. Do you know what I think Monty would do if I rode him out and let the rain slack? He would come straight to your gate, for he is a horse of great judgment. That's the first word he has misspelled, said Molly. I suppose you are sitting with George Taylor and those children right now. Then George will get old enough to help his father, but Uncle Huey's twins will be ready for you about then, and the supply will keep coming from all quarters, all sizes, for you to say big A, little a to them. There is no news here. Only calves and cows and the hens are laying now, which does always seem news to a hen every time she does it. Did I ever tell you about a hen, Emily, we had here? She was venturesome to an extent I have not seen in other hens, only she had poor judgment and would make no family ties. She would keep trying to get interest in the ties of others, taking charge of little chicks and bantams and turkeys and puppies one time, and she thought most anything was an egg. I will tell you about her some time. She died without family ties one day 
while I was building a house for her to teach school in. "'The outrageous wretch!' cried Molly, and her cheeks turned deep pink as she sat alone with her lover's letter. "'I am coming the first day I am free. I will be a hundred miles from you most of the time when I am not more, but I will ride a hundred miles for one hour, and Monty is up to that. After never seeing you for so long, I will make one hour do if I have to. Here is a flower I have just been out and picked. I have kissed it now. That is the best I can do yet. Molly laid the letter in her lap and looked at the flower. Then suddenly she jumped up and pressed it to her lips, and after a long moment held it away from her. No, she said, no, no, no. She sat down. It was some time before she finished the letter. Then, once more, she got up and put on her hat. Mrs. Taylor wondered where the girl could be walking so fast. But she was not walking anywhere, and in half an hour she returned, rosy with her swift exercise, but with a spirit as perturbed as when she had set out. Next morning, at six, when she looked out of her window, there was Monty tied to the tailor's gate. Ah, could he have come the day before? Could she have found him when she returned from that swift walk of hers? End of chapter 24